Welcome to another UCTV.TV podcast presented by University of California Television. We gathered today during the time of the 50th anniversary of the Eichmann trial. I'm sure there are many people here who remember the trial, remember the capture. It was something that galvanized the world. In part, it galvanized the world because of the way Eichmann was found and brought to Jerusalem to stand trial, and it galvanized the world subsequently for very, uh, I think, more significant reasons. So let me just start with a little bit about the capture. Some of you may remember that or know of it from various books and movies uh, about it. But um, uh, Adolf Eichmann, who was not the architect of the final solution, the, the Israelis accused him of that, but that was a mistake. He was not the CEO, but he was one of the COOs of the final solution. He, was, uh, uh, he didn't plan it, but he carried it out. He executed it. He put his stamp on portions of it uh, in a very distinctive fashion. Um, after the war, he uh, escapes with the help of the Vatican and the International uh, Red Cross. Um, he escapes to Argentina where many, quite a few Nazi war criminals have gone and where there's an even larger German expat community. And he lives there under the pseudonym Ricardo Clement. Uh, After a few years there, he sends for his wife and three sons. They join him there. He has another child in um, Argentina. And he's living, he's working as a a manager in a Mercedes-Benz plant after a couple of uh, not very successful attempts at other kind of uh, earning a living, but he does get this job, and probably the head of the plant knew exactly who he was. People knew he was there. The Argentinian police knew he was there. There were reports in the the police files of his presence. Uh, uh, German expats knew he was there. German Nazi war criminals knew he was there. So he was not living such an unknown existence. But at one point, um, after his having been there a number of years, towards the late 50s, um, his presence is discovered by someone who didn't know he was there. There is a a, a German half-Jew, a man named Lothar Hermann, who has come to to Argentina in 39, shortly after Kristallnacht, and makes a decision with his non-Jewish wife to live as a uh, non-Jew, to hide his Jewish identity. They have one daughter, Sylvie, who um, does not know she's Jewish, and they live as part of the German expat community. Uh, he is half blind, in part from a beating he took by, when he was arrested by uh, the Germans for his socialist activities before he fled Germany. Um, at one point, Sylvie brings home her new boyfriend, a young man named Nick Eichmann. The, when the Eichmann boys come to uh, Argentina with their mother, they do not change their last name. They know who this is their father, but they t- the official story is that it's their uncle and their father had died during the war. Um, now, the name Eichmann was not generally known the way it is known today. Uh, it was not known the way Himmler's name was known, Heydrich's name was known, Goring's name, and of course Adolf Hitler's name was known. Um, so uh, it's only when at some point during a visit to the home of Luther, Lothar Hermann and uh, well, with, his, with the daughter Sylvie that uh, Nick Eichmann makes a statement to the effect that um, 
the Germans should have killed all the Jews when they had the chance, and it was a failure to do that. And Lothar Hermann is appalled by this, but doesn't say anything because he doesn't want to blow his own cover. Uh, but he writes, at, so he just listens and makes note of it and is, is disturbed by it. Uh, a, a while later, he reads in the uh, German-language Argentinian newspaper that uh, the Germans, the West Germans, are beginning to uh, plan and prepare their first major war crimes trial. Initially in the 50s, uh, West Germany had no interest in really tracking down Nazis. The government was riddled with former Nazis. There were judges who had been judges in the Weimar Republic, judges in the Third Reich, and now were judges in post-war Germany. The foreign office was riddled with people who had served under Ribbentrop, etc., etc. So finally in the early 60s, the Germans are beginning to plan um, for this uh, uh, trial. And in one of the articles about the plans for this trial, the name Adolf Eichmann is mentioned. And uh, Lothar Hermann remembers Nick Eichmann, Adolf Eichmann, he says, I bet this is the son of, uh, and, and the article mentions that Adolf Eichmann has disappeared and no one knows what's happened to him. So um, Lothar Hermann puts two and two together and writes to the prosecutor who's mentioned in the article, the German prosecutor, a man named Fritz Bauer. Um, who's really the, one of the heroes of this story. Um, and Fritz Bauer uh, is intrigued by what Herman writes, asks Herman to investigate further. Uh, Herman comes back with uh, information linking Ricardo Clement to uh, the identity of Adolf Eichmann. He comes back also with some fantastic theories which aren't true, but he does give further clues that link the two together. And at that point, Fritz Bauer does something that's really quite amazing. With the knowledge of the president of the state of Hesse, where he's located, he, instead of giving this information to the uh, German embassy in Argentina or to German official sources, who, by the way, probably knew Eichmann was, knew Eichmann was where he was, some of them, not all of, all of the German government, but there were certainly people within the German government who knew, he turns to the Israelis. Because he says, you know, there are too many former Nazis who are going to give Eichmann warning. If we, they know we've uncovered his identity, I'm going to the Israelis. And he knows this because um, they had, people had found where Mengele was, and Mengele had been warned and disappeared and managed to uh, live out his, most of his life in um, South, post-war in, in South America. So he was afraid Eichmann would be warned. So he goes to the Israelis, and um, what may seem to us incomprehensible today, the Israelis don't do anything. They don't do anything because these, the head of Israeli security services, Isser Harel, makes a judgment. He says, we have two sets of enemies to face. We can face those who were doing us wrong in the past, who did us wrong in the past, or we have an existential threat of enemies who want to destroy us now. We have limited resources. Remember at this point, the Israeli government is 11 years old. Israel, Israel is 11, 12 years old. Um, and we're going to devote our attention to those who would like to destroy us today. So Bauer gets annoyed, passes on more information. Again, very little happens. Uh, an Israeli operative who's in Argentina is ordered to go drive past the address that Bauer has given them uh, through Lothar Hermann about wh where Eichmann lives, and they see this cinder block, ramshackled house, no electricity, no water, and, and the Israeli operative says this could not be the home of a Nazi who had access to, to so much Jewish wealth, and the, the thing is allowed to uh, lie dormant. Uh, until Fritz Bauer comes to Israel on an official visit and complains to the justice minister that nothing has been done, 
they call Issa Harrell, the head of security services, who's used to only answering to David Ben-Gurion, uh, and they give him additional information, not just the information that's come from Lothar Herman, but additional information linking Ricardo Clement to Adolf Eichmann and making it very clear that this is the man, that there's no question that this is the man who had played such a central role and such an important role in aspects of the final solution. At that point... Um, Harel goes to David Ben-Gurion, and David Ben-Gurion makes what I was saying to a few people right before this lecture, a exceptionally significant decision. He could have said to Harel, you're sure this is Adolf Eichmann? And Harel would have said yes. He said, okay, send a couple of guys down to Argentina and make him disappear. Make him end up in some ditch, you know, walking home one night, just he disappears or he's found dead uh, inexplicably, and it'll be a warning a lesson to um, other German war criminals, don't, your heads should not rest so easy. We know who you are. We may not get you today. We may not get you tomorrow, but we will get you. And it could easily have been done. Instead, Ben-Gurion says to Harel, bring him here and we will put him on trial. Now, it's significant in many respects, just not only the fact that he doesn't want to have him bumped off, but that um, he knows that Argentina will not agree to his extradition. He's living illegally in Argentina under an assumed name. Um, and Argentina is one of Israel's friends. It's a supporter of Israel, one of its few friends in, or limited number of friends in South America. But Ben-Gurion says, bring him here. So Harel sets up this um, plan where a plane that is going to Argentina anyway to bring Abba Eben and a group of, Isra a delegation of Israelis to Argentina for its uh, celebration of its democracy. An El Al plane is going to stay there overnight and then fly back to Israel and it will take some new passengers, mainly Eichmann and uh, those who have captured him. Uh, they engineer a capture of Eichmann. Actually, we now know that this capture was witnessed by an Argentinian policeman who was trailing Eichmann because the portions of the, of the Argentinian police knew who Eichmann was and had been following him. So it's not such a perfect police action as we sometimes were led to think. Um, but the Israelis managed to get him out on the plane, um, and uh, the plane, this plane flies further than the, uh, such a plane had ever flown before. By the time it lands in Tel Aviv, after refueling once, it is it's flying on fumes. The plane lands in Tel Aviv, and um, Eichmann is taken to a prison in Akko, and Harel goes to tell Ben-Gurion that Eichmann Eichmann is in our hands, he's here, etc. And Harel asks um, Ben-Gurion to wait a day or two to make the official announcement. He says, because we've left behind some Israeli operatives in Argentina who are breaking down the safe house, returning the rented cars, covering up our tracks so they won't know it was the Israelis. Of course, Harel doesn't know that the Argentinians knew there was a group of Israelis there and had been uh, aware of their actions. Um, and uh, Ben-Gurion says, well, how many people know already that Eichmann is in our hands? And Harel says, well, all the operatives and the people, the El Al staff, the people who were on the plane, the flight attendants, the, uh, ben, uh, Harel had insisted that El Al's chief mechanic be on the plane in case there was anything that went wrong, that he, they wouldn't have to depend on an Argentinian um, or some other foreign um, mechanic, etc. And Ben-Gurion makes a decision, if you know anything about Israeli society, says if those many, that many people know, by tomorrow everybody will know, I'm not going to wait to announce it. And the next day he goes to the Knesset 
and it's during a regular budget debate. The word has spread that the, the Prime Minister is coming with some sort of special announcement, and in two sentences he said, Eichmann has come, a very strange uh, use of verbs, if you look at the Hebrew, it's equally strange. Uh, Eichmann has come into the hands of, um, Israel, of is the State of Israel, and he will be, uh, Eichmann, who is one of the architects of the Final Solution, has come into the hands of Israel, come into the hands, a strange kind of um, description, and he will be tried under the 1950 law uh, that Israel, the Knesset had passed against Nazis and their collaborators. And it, it, it's a, it, though it's a little bit of a digression, it pays for a moment to say, how come Israel passed the law in 1950 uh, against, uh, you know, the, um, for the punishment of Nazis and their collaborators? It wasn't exactly like Israel was expecting a bunch of Nazi war criminals to show up at the port in Haifa and say, try us. I mean, what was this law all about? Well, first of all, it was to bring Israel into, um, into Israeli law into coordination with law in a number of European countries. But more, really, the real emphasis or the real impetus for it were survivors in Israel who would be on a bus in Tel Aviv or at the beach in, in Haifa or, uh, you know, at the market in Beersheba, wherever it was, and would see someone and say, that man was the capo in my barracks. That man told on where a friend of mine was hiding or where I was hiding in order to save his family's skin. So this was a really a way of finding a way to adjudicate people who were accused of being Jews, who were accused of being uh, collaborators, not collaborators is the wrong word, but have, have been less than um, uh, done what they should have or were felt to have acted untowardly um, in, during, during the war. Um, but they also, it also included a clause for punishing Nazi war criminals. It also included the potential for the death penalty, the only law in Israel that had that penalty. So there was a law in existence for Eichmann to be tried, but there were other questions. Who was going to defend Eichmann? Where would the trial be? The, Israel had no courtroom that was large enough to accommodate the world's press, which the world was just in, totally intrigued by the capture of Eichmann. Um, who would sit in judgment? Now, under normal circumstances and uh, traditional uh, legal Israeli circumstances, uh, the judge would have been the head of the Jerusalem District Court, a man named Binyamin Halevi. The problem with Halevi was that a few years earlier, he had been the judge in another famous trial in Israel called the Kastner trial, where Rudolf Kastner, Israel Kastner, was um, on trial for having been accused by, he was actually, he wasn't on trial, I'm sorry, that's entirely wrong. He was uh, suing or charging a Hungarian Jew um, who had said that Kastner had collaborated with Adolf Eichmann. Kastner was one of those that Eichmann negotiated with about the ransoming of Hungarian Jews. And without getting long into that story, um, but during that trial uh, where Kastner sued this man for libel, Kastner lost. And in the judgment, the judge in that case, Benjamin Halevi, uh, said about Kastner, Maharet nafsho la satan, he sold his soul to the devil. So Israeli judicial officials said, we can't say to the world this is a fair trial if the chief judge in this trial is someone who's already said in a judgment about Eichmann has compared him to Satan, to Satan. It's just not 
uh, can't be done. Well, Halevi refused to stand aside, so the Knesset went into action and passed a law saying that in a, in a case with its a cap, potential capital case, the chief judge must be a member of the Israeli um, high court, Beit Mishpat Elyon. So Moshe Landau became the chief judge. Halevi was on the bench, but as a, as a, uh, in, not in the chief judge position, and uh, Judge Ravev from the Tel Aviv District Court was the third judge. But who was going to prosecute Eichmann? Israel had just gotten a new attorney general, a man who was a commercial lawyer from Tel Aviv, Polish-born, had come to Israel many years earlier, um, who had no criminal law expense experience, had very little courtroom experience. His name was Gideon Hausner. And everybody in the Israeli governmental and legal establishment hoped that Hausner would stand aside and let someone who had criminal legal courtroom experience handle the prosecution. But Hausner said, no, I am going to handle it. But that also left the question of who was going to defend Eichmann. If Israel was going to present this case to the world as a case which was, as a trial which was a fair, just trial, that this man got a fair trial, um, he had to have a good defense. And Israel was very sensitive to this because after the capture, there had been a world uproar about, you know, you can't just go into another country and kidnap a man and bring him to your country and put him on trial. You just can't do those kind of things. Um, some people said, uh, how can Israel, what standing does Israel have to, to try this man? It's created in 48. The crimes are done earlier. Uh, the law under which he's going to be tried is passed in 1950. Um, he should be tried in Germany. He should be tried by an international court. Of course, Germany had no interest in conducting this trial. The last thing Conrad Adenauer wanted was for this trial to be in Germany because he didn't want to call attention to all the Nazis who were in the German government, including his, his chief of staff, who was a man named Hans Klopke, who had been a member of the Nazi party and actually worked for the party, worked in the justice ministry, and had been involved in the Nuremberg laws and, and various and sundry other laws. Um, so Germany was the least, not the least bit interested in having this trial there. It also didn't want the new Germany associated with Nazi Germany. There was no international criminal court. There was an international court for cases between nations, but there was no international criminal court for cases against an individual. So there really was no other option. To return him to Argentina, which had let him live there uh, very nicely for all those years, the Israelis said, We're not, you, you showed no interest in trying to find him, no interest in tracking him down. Had the Israelis known that the Argentinians knew he was there and had done nothing about it, they even would have been l even less inclined to return him to Argentina. So... Um, one of the other criticisms that was made was that um, how could Jewish judges sit in fair judgment of a man who had been accused, uh, was accused of conducting, uh, playing a major role in killing off one-third of the Jewish population. Um, of course, as Hannah Arendt, who I'll talk about later, pointed out, no one raised this question after the war when the Poles conducted trials, or when the Czechs conducted trials, and those two countries had suffered mightily at the hands of the Germans, but when the Jews were conducting trial, the question came up. So it made it all the more important for Israel to make sure that Eichmann had a good defense attorney and was seen as getting a fair representation. A number of Israeli lawyers stepped forward to defend him, volunteering to defend him, and it wasn't because, of course, they had any sympathy with what Eichmann had done, but they felt that every person deserves a good defense. Israeli authorities were highly disinclined um, to allow an Israeli to defend Eichmann 
because Kastner, they knew what had happened to Kastner. Kastner had been assassinated on the streets of Tel Aviv a few years earlier, and they feared that the same thing could happen to a lawyer who was defending Eichmann. Even if this lawyer made it abundantly clear that he had not an iota of sympathy for what Eichmann had done or agreement with what Eichmann had done, there would be a failure in people's mind to be able to differentiate between the person defending the criminal and the acts of the criminal. We have that today. How much more so in a country uh, populated by so many survivors, people who had lost family, who had lost all their family in the war, etc. So uh, they knew they did not want an Israeli defending him. But what did that leave? They also didn't want a, member, a former Nazi coming to Israel to defend him, someone who had been a member of the Nazi party. They just felt this would be unacceptable. So the, it turns out that the Eichmann family really helped the Israelis out of this jam by suggesting that, the, that they wanted a man named Dr. Servatius uh, to represent Eichmann, and Servatius, had, who had not been a member of the Nazi party but was a lawyer in Germany who had uh, defended some of the uh, defendants at the Nuremberg trial. So they felt he had done a good job there and they would do, he would do a good job for Adolf Eichmann. Uh, so for the, he was ex acceptable to the Israelis, so Servatius was appointed, but then came another problem. Who was going to pay Servatius? Servatius wanted a fee of $30,000, which in 1961 dollars is, is, uh, or amounts is quite substantial. Now, n under normal circumstances, the German government would pay um, for the fees of a lawyer defending a German accused of crimes outside of Germany. That was the stand, that was how Germany operated, that if you're a German citizen and you're accused of a crime outside of Germany, we will pay to uh, defend you. But as I said earlier, Adenauer's government in West Germany had no desire to be associated with Eichmann. Eichmann was seen as a really disgusting Nazi, as a man with blood on his hands in a way that some of the others didn't have it as directly on their hands. Um, they all were equally uh, guilty of terrible crimes, but he was just seen as um, even more culpable. Um, so uh, the Germans and the, so the Germans said, well, Eichmann fled Germany. He fled under a pseudonym. He lived under a pseudonym. We'd been we wanted to put him on trial, etc. So we have no obligation to defend him or to pay for his defense, rather. Uh, so at that point, Israel would said, we will pick up the bill. So Israel ended up paying for um, Eichmann's defense. So everything is in place in terms of the players. Now you need a place for the trial. Um, at that point um, in Israel, the court houses, those of you who know Israel now, now it's a much more uh, funky, nicer uh, area, but the Russian compound, which is right uh, at the foot of Rehov Yafo, uh, at that point was uh, where the, where the uh, courts were, and it was the courtrooms were small and modest and uh, very, rather ramshackled. So Israel knew it couldn't, that no courtroom there could accommodate um, the number of, of reporters who were already talking about coming to the trial. So it shows, it is, uh, Ben Gurion assigned uh, a young man who worked in his office, uh, who happened to have been born in Vienna uh, and come to Israel many years earlier, uh, and who had worked for him for quite a while, to find a place to hold the trial. This uh, gentleman, whose name was Teddy Kalak, uh, goes on to be the legendary mayor of Jerusalem for many, many years, um, looks around Jerusalem and finds a cultural center that is in the process of being built. 
And he goes to the contractor and he says, look, we're going to need this in exactly a year for holding a trial. Will it be ready? The contractor says yes. And miracle of miracles, if you're having anything built anywhere, but especially in Israel, it's actually ready um, on time. And the trial is held in its theater. Um, the, so you have your judges, you have your defense, you have your prosecution, you have your place. Um, now comes the matter of the indictment. And Hausner decides that in contrast to Nuremberg, now in Nuremberg, the, and there have been many trials in Nuremberg, but, but in the trials in Nuremberg, um, the crimes against humanity were, first of all, not the main thing with which the defendants were accused, of which the defendants were accused, A, and B, even though crimes against humanity did occupy a centerpiece, um, the crimes against the Jews were one of a subset of many different crimes against humanity. At that point, the world hadn't really realized or come to grasp how the uh, crimes against the Jews were of a different nature than the, cri- the other crimes against humanity, as terrible as they were and as unforgivable as they were and as horrifying as they were that the uh, Germans had committed. Number one. Number two, um, moving away just from the indictment, at Nuremberg, uh, the main evidence had been documents. In fact, our earliest histories of the Holocaust, such as Raoul Hilberg's uh, magisterial work on the destruction of European Jewry, are based on the documents that are introduced in uh, Nuremberg. There had been very few survivors to give testimony, virtually none, few. Um, and in fact, Justice Jackson, you know, America's prosecutor at Nuremberg, is a member of the Supreme Court. Uh, can you imagine today a situation where a member of the Supreme Court would take a year's leave to go and engage in another project? Well, this is how important it was considered. When Truman appoints Justice Jackson, he goes, he takes a year off, and he is in um, Germany, and he serves as America's prosecutor in Germany. In fact, I was just reading an article on Jackson put out by the Jackson Institute. There is very serious uh, speculation and uh, or argument amongst uh, scholars of the Supreme Court and Jackson scholars that his, by his going to Germany and conducting these trials and insisting on their importance and being away from Washington, he really gave up his opportunity to be uh, chief justice, that he might have had a very good chance of being chief justice if he hadn't done this. So you can understand his commitment to this. He, together with the other prosecutors, had decided that these defendants would be convicted not on the basis of witness statements, but on the basis of documents. In many cases, documents which they had written, documents which they had signed, uh, which would convict them of what they did. So the voice of the witness is missing. When Hausner comes now to uh, prepare the trial and prepare the indictment, um, he decides he's going to make this different. He writes that um, Nuremberg had failed to capture the imagination of the world, of the horrors of what happened, and it also rendered uh, the crimes against the Jews into a sidebar, into a secondary, if not tertiary, uh, element of importance. He was going to put the crimes against the Jews centerpiece. He was not going to ignore the other crimes that uh, he accused Eichmann of having committed, but the crimes against the Jewish people, the destruction of the Jewish people, would be the centerpiece, and... And this is the crucial element. Together with Ben-Gurion's decision not to, say, just bump this guy off, but this is the other crucial element, he is going to tell the story of the final solution from its initial moments to its final moments through the first person singular, i.e., the voice of the survivor. 
Now, there's a mistaken impression amongst many people, including many Israelis, that up until the Eichmann trial, survivors had never spoken about what happened to them. There had been never any talk of the Holocaust. That's a mistake. It's an impression, but it's a mistaken impression. Um, there, many survivors had spoken. Some had already written. Some had lectured. Some uh, people paid attention. In Israel, there was the debate over the 1950 law against Nazi and their collaborators, which I just mentioned. There was a debate. There's always debate, but there was debate over the establishment of Yad Vashem. What should it be? A research, a memory place, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. There was the Kastner trial. There was the murder of Kastner. There had been lots and lots of discussion of the Shoah, but the difference was that the world never paid attention, never gave heed the way it did during the Eichmann trial. When these people stood up there and one after another in succession of witnesses, close to 100 witnesses, the survivors, told their story, a number of things became clear. First of all, one of the things that became clear, not just to the Israelis in the audience, but to many people, was that these people had been victims of what happened, not because of some inherent flaw in who they were, not because they were weak, not because they were exilic or diaspora Jews who didn't know how to fight back, that as one Israeli wrote, um, you know, paraphrasing what she wrote, uh, there but for fortune go I, that it was more a matter of geographic and chronological destiny, where you happen to be and when you happen to be there, that you too could have been a victim. And when I read that, and as I became, came to that conclusion, I was reminded of something that uh, Professor Shaul Friedlander, who teaches at UCLA, um, wrote in his book, The Years of Extermination, uh, which won the Pulitzer Prize a number of years ago, when he writes in the very beginning of that book that one of the striking things about the Holocaust is that throughout the European continent, not one cultural institution, not one religious institution, not one educational institution, not one scholarly institution rose up in defense of what was happening to the, to, or in opposition to what was happening to the Jews. So that when you want to know why, these, why what happened to the victims of the Holocaust happened, don't look at them, look at the world around them. Look at the sea of hostility in which they found themselves. That's what you should see. Um, and that became very, very clear uh, during the course of the trial. Um, Hausner uh, did something very strange during the trial. At a number of points, he turned to um, survivors, and he asked them something which uh, caused a lot of people to be very angry because I think they misunderstood what he was asking. Um, he asked them, basically, why didn't you resist? Why didn't you fight back? Now, some people understood Hausner's question as a sort of typical Sabra uh, perspective, particularly generation of Sabras, well, Sabra born after the war, after the Holocaust, you know, that we would never let this to happen to us. Why didn't you fight back? We would have fought back. Fought back. Um, I don't think that's why Hausner was asking. I think Hausner, in going over the, the Nuremberg documents, in meeting with all these survivors, in talking to them, had come to realize this, this terrible fact of, you know, the, 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 that there was nothing wrong with these people but for the, where they were and when they were there. Um, and he wanted to show that to the world. And at one point, um, he 
asked it of a of he asked it of two people. I want to talk about those two people. One was a man named Yaakov Gerfein, and Yaakov Gerfein uh, told how his mother had pushed him from the train that was taking that was deporting them um, to a death camp, and he managed to make his way back to the Krakow ghetto, and he saw how bad things were in the ghetto. He managed to escape from the Krakow ghetto and go to Plashov, the labor camp that many of you know from uh, Schindler's List. And when he realized how bad things were uh, in Plashov, he escaped from Plashov, and he made his way across Slovakia, Romania, and Hungary, eventually reaching Palestine. So a very brave man. And Hausner, he's on the, tra- he's on the stand, and he's telling the story, and Hausner says to him, why did you board the train? Why didn't, you know, in other words, almost accusing him, why were you so silly or unaware to and get on this train? And, and Gerfine answers, this was in 1943. After so many years, we didn't have the strength to resist anymore. We wanted to die more quickly. So Hausner says, so why did you jump? He said, when we saw that the train was going in the direction of Belzec, the death camp, some spark was kindled within people who wanted to save themselves. He, he, was, he was on the defensive. And, right after, and shortly after Gerfine test, testified, a... Um, a uh, Tel Aviv magistrate, a man named Moshe Baisky, came into the stand. And Moshe Baisky, very respected Tel Aviv magistrate, and the judges say to him, you may sit if you like. And he said, no, no, I prefer to stand. Obviously, a man of the court who felt that a court such as, especially a court such as this, deserved the respect of a witness testifying standing up. And for uh, quite a while, he testifies not in full sentences, but in full paragraphs. When you read his testimony, it's articulate, it's, it's polished, it's put together. And then he starts to tell the story of uh, 15,000 people in a labor camp, and a young boy was brought out, a young child, who was going to be hanged for, for having committed some wrong. And the child was lifted up to the gallows, but the rope broke. And Baisky recalled in his testimony, he says, he was again lifted onto a high chair, which was placed under the rope. The child began to beg for mercy, but an order was given to hang him a second time. And just then, as he's telling this story, Hausner pounces. And he says, 15,000 people, a few hundred guards, why didn't you attack? Why didn't you revolt? And suddenly, this articulate witness, this full paragraph testifier, Standing tall and standing straight, you can see the pictures of him and the photos of him, the films of him testifying, is leaving sentences unfinished, is speaking in phrases. Even in the court stenographic record, there are ellipses to show that he's not speaking in full sentences. And he goes on to say, this was already in the third year of the war. Nevertheless, there was still hope. Maybe we possibly, maybe we would survive. And then he says goes on to say, I cannot describe this terror-inspiring fear. Nearby, by us, Spisky says, was a Polish camp. There were a 1,000 Poles. 100 meters beyond the camp, they had a place to go to, their homes. I don't recall one instance of escape on the part of the Poles, but where could any of us Jews go? We were wearing clothes which were dyed yellow with stripes. In the center of our hair, there was a kind of swath four centimeters in width, so they'd be noticeable anywhere they went. And let's suppose 15,000 people within the camp even succeeded without arms to to go beyond the boundaries. Where could they go? 
And after the testimony, Beisky confronted Hausner and said, why didn't you warn me? Why didn't you tell me that you were going to ask this question? And Hausner said he wanted a spontaneous reaction. He wanted an unrehearsed answer. He described Beisky's testimony as the most convincing piece of human truth I have ever heard on the subject, that the only way to get people to understand the terrible situation which the victims found themselves was not to give them a chance to give a rehearsed answer, but to speak from the gut. And I have to say, personally, when I read Beisky's testimony, I stopped and I uh, took it to the photocopy machine and copied it. And I put it into my file in which I carry my lectures back and forth to my course on the history of the Holocaust, because I knew that at some point, some student is going to ask me, why didn't they fight back? And, And you would give them this kind of answer. And you know who reinforced the difficulty of Jews fighting back, the impossibility of Jews fighting back? It came from at the point shortly after Beisky testified when the resistance fighters testified. One by one, whether it was Abba Kovner, whether it was Zivia Lubetkin-Zuckerman, who she was part of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, whether it was her husband, who was also part of the Warsaw Ghetto Uprising, each one of them said, don't ask why there was so little revolt. Ask how was it possible that there was any revolt at all. Abba Kovner said, To have a revolt, you need a national authority. You need someone to call for revolt. You need someone to organize it. Who was going to organize it? In the ghetto, we were multiple people with different languages and different cultures. We could hardly communicate one with the other. Where were we going to get arms? Say what a miracle it was that there was a revolt. And you heard this over and over again from the resistance fighters, and it clearly had a very strong impression on many of the reporters sitting there, including many um, Israelis. Uh, there were other moments, very, very powerful moments, and for me, some of the most powerful moments were the individual stories. Uh, Martin Foldy, a Hungarian Jew, stands up to testify, and he writes, you know, Hungarian, the, the murder of Hungarian Jews comes tragically, tragically at the very end of the war. The Russians were on their way uh, through Romania to Hungary. They're, they will, they're, they're not far that far away. It's clear that Germany has lost the war. And yet in April 1944, right at this time, beginning of May rather, first week in May, we're, we're marking the anniversary, 1944, Adolf Eichmann organizes the deportation of Hungarian Jews. And in the next approximately seven weeks, uh, close to half a million Hungarian Jews will be killed. The the ovens at that cremate the bodies at Auschwitz break down from the working overtime to cremate their bodies. Um, and one of the Hungarian Jews who manages to survive, to survive, Martin Foldy, t- gives testimony about what happened. And he describes the arrival at Auschwitz, and he says he's put on one line. He doesn't know that's the line for survivors. And on the other line, his wife and children are put, and they're led away. And he doesn't know, of course, at that point that they're being led away to the gas chamber. And he said, and I watched them as they walked into the distance. And Hausner says to him, well, how did you know that was your wife and children? How could you, in the mass, how could you keep track of them? He said, because my little girl, who was about three years old, was wearing a red coat, and I could watch the red coat. That red coat, of course, will be reprised many years later by Steven Spielberg in a different setting in the Krakow ghetto, but um, that same red coat will make its appearance. And then there's another person stands up to testify about the deportation of French children. 
and he describes going, because the children are deported uh, set in certain cases separately from the parents. And he goes to, he describes where the children, visiting where the children are being held. And he knows the parents have been deported to Auschwitz and are probably dead at this point, and that the children will soon be in the same situation. But he tries to give them some comfort. And uh, he describes meeting one young boy, looked about six or seven. He said, who once, who must have come from a, from a very comfortable home, because he's wearing a little sailor suit, he said, which is ragged, but you can tell had once been good quality. And he has one shoe on and one he has lost one shoe. And in his hand, he's cl- clutching a biscuit. And they ask him, he, uh, the, the visitor asks him, Where, what's the biscuit for? He says, when I see mommy, it's for, my, for, for her. And they ask him, what is... What do your parents do? And he says, Daddy goes to the office and Mommy plays piano. So he comes. And he's, but he's very optimistic. When I see my mother, I'm going to give her this biscuit. And then one of the visitors, just at one point, just in a spontaneous gesture, strokes the little boy's face and he bursts into tears. And it's that heartbreaking. It reminds you, as much of this trial did, that while genocide happens to large numbers of people, it also happens to one by one by one to individuals, whether it's the Holocaust or any other um, act of genocide. Uh, There were strange moments of uplift. When people expected, of course, the resistance fighters to provide that moment of uplift, it didn't come. But what did, it did come at one point when um, a man named Melchior gave testimony. His father had been chief rabbi of um, Denmark, and if you remember, the, da- the, the Jews in Denmark had been warned, probably by someone from within the German ranks of the Germans, that um, the deportations were going to come at Rosh Hashanah night, and the rabbi warns the Jews who come to the shul, don't go home tonight, go and find shelter somewhere else. Well, the son, who, by the way, who's whose son has been in the Israeli government, Rabbi Melchior, some of you may know of him, um, knows that his father's going to make that announcement that night. And he's, he and his family are preparing to flee. And on that day, um, he goes to the library, to re- the university, to return some books. I always say that's an aggravated sense of responsibility. On the day you're preparing to be deported, you're going to go to flee, you're returning library books. But he describes um, going to the university and he says, in the space of, t- he said, I wasn't at the university more than 10 minutes. But in that 10 minutes, two different groups of students, students he didn't know personally, but he knew by sight, approached him and said separately, um, we know who you are. This is how to get in touch with us. If there's anything we can do, you must be in touch with us at once. And he describes how Denmark was never more united in those days. Didn't matter whether it was men or women, business people, uh, cab drivers, uh, fishermen, everyone, rich, poor, were united in helping these Jews escape across the water uh, to Sweden. And um, Chaim Guri, who was a reporter covering the trial and wrote color pieces sort of for Davar, one of the leading newspapers, then one of the leading newspapers in Israel, uh, described uh, Melchior's testimony. And then... um, wrote about the fact that sitting in front of him, a woman was weeping during the testimony. So when Melchior finished, he turned to the woman, he said, are you all right? And she said, yes, I only cry when people are nice to me. And here was one of those moments of uh, a story of people being taken, one of the few moments in the trial of people being taken care of. What about Hannah Arendt? I devote a whole chapter towards the end of the book, but Hannah Arendt, um, as Professor Hecht suggested in his very generous um, 
uh, introduction, has been linked to this trial in a way that she's become, she's become more important than Eichmann. I mean, she essentially is an intellectual, of course, not just because she's an intellectual, but what she has to say and the debate she generates uh, does make her more important than Eichmann. She's a professor... She's a German Jew who has left Germany in 33, shortly after the Nazis come to power. She's afraid she's going to be arrested for her work with the Zionists. She goes to Paris. She works with Youth Aliyah, bringing some children to Palestine. Um, and then when the Nazis come to Germany, she's briefly incarcerated, and then she manages to come to this country under a special program we have for scholars, et cetera. Um, she comes to this country. Uh, first, she works for Shock and Books, the same publisher who published my book. Um, and then eventually she gets a job. She publishes the uh, Origins of Totalitarianism, a, a seminal work, and she gets a job. Uh, she becomes the first woman to be a full professor at Princeton, teaches at the University of Chicago for quite a f few years. When the trial is, when the capture is announced, and the trial is announced that it will take place a year after the capture, first she goes to Commentary Magazine and asks them to send her to Jerusalem to cover it, and Commentary doesn't or can't, can't afford it, whatever. Then she goes to The New Yorker. And the New Yorker is very interested in her doing it and says they will send her to Jerusalem. She is there. She's not there for the whole trial. She misses some of the most important moments of the trial when uh, Eichmann is on the stand being cross-examined uh, by Gideon Hausner. But she writes her, her articles for the New Yorker and then publishes them in a book called Eichmann in Jerusalem on the banality of evil. It's a subtitle. Some people now only know the subtitle and not the main title of the book. Um, and in it, she says some very horrible and cruel things. She talks about the Jewish councils in the ghettos and describes them as being like collaborators. And she says the people in the ghettos uh, face two enemies. They face the enemy of the Nazis and they face the enemy of uh, the Jews. Um, the Jewish councils. She talks about the Jews' failure to resist, how the Jews very obediently went to the ditches and uh, where they were going to be shot and folded their clothing and laid them there and then stood up there to be shot without resisting. Now, in the next paragraph, she says, but nobody else resisted either. But by the time you got to that sentence, you sort of, it's been lost in the, in the, in the cruel way she's described the Jews. She talks about Rabbi Leo Beck, a reform rabbi, the leader of the uh, German Jewish, uh, the reform movement and prominent Berlin rabbi, who had many chances to escape Germany, many, many chances, and turned them down because he did not want to leave his flock. Um, when he goes to Theresienstadt, to Terrazin, when he's taken to the camp at Terrazin, he knows that the Jews being deported from there are being deported to their death in Auschwitz. He doesn't warn people, he says, because he didn't want to make their last days even worse, their last moments on the train, even worse than they otherwise were. She talks about him as the Jewish Fuhrer. Um, and in fact, in saying that, she's plagiarizing a comment that a Nazi had said without attributing it to a Nazi. Um, so she says some horrible things. On the other hand, she also has some amazing insights. One of her insights was, let me just find that. Um, she writes that this trial, the importance of this trial, she writes about the importance of this trial. For the first time since the year 70, when Jerusalem was destroyed by the Romans, Jews were able to sit in judgments on crimes committed against their own people. For the first time, they did not need to appeal to others for protection and justice or fall back upon the compromised phraseology of the rights of man, rights which, as no one better than they, knew, no one knew better than they, were claimed only by people who were too weak to defend their rights and enforce their own laws. 
So for the first time, what's the importance of Israel? For the first time since the Second Temple, Jews could sit in judgment of non-Jews who had done them wrong. It's a very powerful statement. Or another powerful observation she makes, um, she talks about Abba Kovner, one of the resistance fighters' testimony. She hates his testimony because it's not testimony, it's a speech. He's giving an oratory, he's a poet, he's giving a very impassioned speech um, during the trial. But during his, his impassioned speech, for one moment he tells the story of a German sergeant named Anton Schmidt. Anton Schmidt, one of the true heroes, um, his job was to go into the forest and find uh, German soldiers who had been separated from their units and reunite them with their units. And in that capacity, he had freedom to move about. He uh, surprised, he supplied the resistance fighters in Vilna, of which Abakovna was the leader, um, with arms, with uniforms, with materiel, with uh, ammunition, and he wouldn't take any money for it. So when Abakovna is telling the story, um, Hannah Arendt is transfixed, and she writes, a hush settled over the courtroom. It was as if the crowd had spontaneously decided to observe the usual two minutes of silence in honor of the man named Anton Schmidt. And in those two minutes, which were like a sudden burst of light in the midst of impenetrable, unfathomable darkness, a single thought stood out, clearly, Irrefutable, beyond question, how utterly different everything would be today in this courtroom, in Israel, in Germany, and in all of Europe, and perhaps in all the other countries of the world, if only more such stories could have been told. And in that, she's capturing the essence of what the Shoah was about, what, what uh, Shaul Friedlander was saying, whom I quoted earlier that there were so few Anton Schmitz to stand up, to take a chance, to, to defend these people, that that, in essence, is the tragedy. And she goes on to say, when she's writing about the Danes or the Bulgarians who also saved many Jews, she said that um, what, their, what their actions demonstrated, that when faced with Nazi-like terror, most people will comply. But then she goes on, putting her comments in italics, some people will not. The final solution, she goes on to say, could have happened in most places, but once again, it did not happen everywhere. So she's pinpointing Germany, her own country, and the German people uh, for their failure to, to stop what it becomes the Holocaust. Uh, so at the same time that she says cruel and terrible things, she, she finds a certain um, insights into the trial, which I think are extremely important. What then can we say about this trial in, in total? Um, I think it, it has its importance, a number of things that are extremely important about it. First and foremost, as I've said earlier, and I want to emphasize because I think it's the crucial element, it's the first time not that survivors speak in such a concerted fashion, but the first time the li world listens in such a concerted fashion. It begins the, tri it begins the process by which you end up in your community with a magnificent um, exhibition, ex exhibition installation of the lives of survivors, of people talking about what happened to them. 
It's not the trial alone that does it. The six-day war has a tremendous impact. Um, the, the survivors get older. As people get older, they don't, in their 20s, they're not writing their memoirs. And when they get to their 50s and 60s, they're more likely to write them. There are many things that play a role. Other survivors speaking out uh, gives the impetus to get others to, to write about it. But much of it begins with the Eichmann trial. Another thing that the Eichmann trial does is that, particularly but not only in Israel, um, it shows, as I said earlier, that there's not that this didn't happen to these people because of some genetic mistake or that they were genetically incapable of fighting back, but, but that the world didn't listen, the world didn't come forward, no one helped them. The woman who wept, I'm, I weep when people are nice to me because so few people as a survivor she knew in this history had been nice to her. Um, it put the field of Holocaust studies on the map. It generated more attention to the field of Holocaust studies. And most, and I think above all, going back again to my um, a point about the survivors, that after this trial, through to today, you never have a genocide trial, war crimes trial, whether you're talking about the Holocaust, whether you're talking about the former Yugoslavia, whether you're talking about Rwanda, whether you're talking about Congo, without the first person singular, the person saying, this is my story, this is what happened to me, and, and saying it quite clearly and quite uh, passionately. Um, the judges, of course, decided in the end that Eichmann should, uh, was guilty. There was little question about that. What was the question was, uh, what would be the sentence? That, would he, they give out him the death sentence? And um, there had been a ruling in the Israeli high court uh, a number of years before this trial that um, any sentence that was stipulated in a law did not mean that if the person was give, guilty, ipso facto, that sentence had to be applied. But that sentence was the most that could be applied. So if, they, if the law said if someone does X, Y, and Z, he should be guilty of getting 20 years, that the judge was not obligated to give 20 years, but that was the 20 years was the maximum. So this 1950 law, of course, is one of the, the few laws in Israel, only laws in, law in Israel, that has a death penalty clause. And the judges, um, they deliberate for, for, from August to December. And when they come to announce their statement, uh, their decision, and they're going to tell Eichmann the bottom line before they go through the long explanation that Moshe Landau, who's a magnificent judge, determines that he is going to tell Eichmann right at the beginning what they've decided. And they say, um, we abide by the interpretation of the law that just because it says the death penalty must be applied, we don't believe it has to be applied. And many people at that moment think, ah, Eichmann has escaped the death penalty. And then after a pause he says, but we feel it should be applied here because you deserve to have it applied. So in other words, they're making it very clear, we're not applying it because we feel we have no choice and that's our obligation. We apply it because that's the decision we have reached. And of course, Eichmann is the only man in Israel's history ever to be sentenced, and have, uh, two people were sentenced to death, uh, Eichmann and Dumyanyuk. And Dumyanyuk, of course, had his sentence overturned by the high court. So Eichmann is the only person to be sentenced and have that sentence carried out uh, to this to this day. And even about the sentence, the, the carrying out of the death sentence, there was a great debate. There were many people, professors at Hebrew University, including Martin Buber, Gershom Shalom, Hugo Bergman, a philosophy professor, and, and people who were witnesses at the trial, a, a uh, artist, Yaakov Bakon, and others who were against the death penalty. They felt that um, 
against the death penalty in prison, let him, in, in principle, let him sit in jail, let him rot in jail. There were historians who said we can get more information from him. Ben-Gurion um, was not uh, persuaded by these arguments. He said Eichmann had many, many sessions on the, um, in the stand to tell his story. We know everything he has to say, and, and it's not my place to forgive him, to offer him uh, mercy. Um, and so there was no commutation of the sentence. Uh, and he was uh, hung. He was cremated in Israel. Israel had no cremation facilities. They had a sort of jerry-rig two half uh, drums of oil and used that as a cremation thing. And then his ashes were taken out to deep into the Mediterranean and sprinkled there so that his uh, burial place would not become a pilgrimage for neo-Nazis. Um, it, it created, this trial created an audience to listen to the facts of genocide, particularly this genocide, but not only this genocide, in a new and different fashion. And it put the face of genocide, as I've said before, but I really want to end by emphasizing this on the individual suffering. That when we talk about genocide, of course we're talking about multitudes who are killed, but those multitudes are made up of one by one by one, and that's what this trial emphasized. I'd like to close with an incident that happened to me a number of years ago, I read from the end of my book, uh, a number of years ago I was invited to a conference at Yad Vashem. While there I met a group of young Rwandans who had asked Yad Vashem to train them in how to conduct oral testimony with trauma victims. They wanted to ensure that the history of the genocide that had decimated their country and their families would be preserved. Yad Vashem, eager to make them comfortable, arranged for them to have dinner on their first night in Ju Jerusalem with French-speaking Holocaust survivors. By the end of the dinner, the two groups of survivors had bonded so strongly that the elderly survivors took the young Rwandans under their wings, invited them to their homes, introduced them to their families, and began to build personal relations. One afternoon, I sat with some of the Rwandans outside of Yad Vashem, looking out over the Judean hills. They told me of their experience during the Rwanda genocide and their meeting with Holocaust survivors. One young man whose entire family had been murdered said to me, I want to tell my story and help my fellow Rwanda survivors tell theirs, just like the Holocaust survivors. I want people to listen to me as they listen to them. Despite the inherent contradiction in his next statement, I completely understood what he meant and recognized the passion with which he said it. I had heard it many times before from Holocaust survivors. Future generations, those who were not there, must remember what happened. And we who were there, the Rwandan went on to say, must tell them. This may be the most enduring legacy of what occurred in Jerusalem in 1961. Thank you very much. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.